0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to the all-new Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Max Tillman. We're here every week with a panel of guests from the world of business and beyond to take a look at the numbers that make up the news. Coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and broadcast right across Australia on the Community Radio Network and straight into your own device wherever you are in the world via podcast. How much do you pay for your petrol? Last week, Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman announced huge price cuts for Saudi crude oil and a planned increase in the country's daily production from 9 million barrels to 11 million barrels per day, with the extra production to begin next month. It's all part of a remarkably expensive game of chicken with Russia, the world's third largest crude oil producer and the biggest challenge to the Organisation of Petroleum Exporting Countries, or OPEC, the global cartel led by Saudi Arabia that generates 35% of the world's crude oil. But what does this mean for petrol prices in Australia? You may have seen news articles in the last few weeks predicting $1 a litre petrol, but how realistic is that? And with the global supply of black gold now in jeopardy, does the argument for the electric car become even louder? Joining us in the studio for this week's Battle of the Bowser is our panellists, Dr Nicholas DeRoos, an Associate Professor of Economics at the University of Sydney with a particular interest in the dynamics of retail petrol markets. Mark McKenzie, CEO of the Australian Convenience and Petroleum Marketers Association, Australia's peak industry body for petrol retailers. And joining us via telephone link is Michael Day, National Treasurer for the Australian Electric Vehicle Association. Thank you all for joining us. Dr Daruz, Saudi Arabia and Russia are currently in the midst of an oil price standoff that is sending shockwaves around a global economy already crippled by COVID-19. What started this standoff and what has this done to global markets?
1: Well, I think uh, global markets have been fairly dramatically affected. Crude oil prices have come down substantially. And uh, if you think about it, this is a game where several major players have a big interest in uh, earning a lot of money out of the global oil market. And they're battling for market share. And also they're worried about so there's an opportunity to increase market share, but the, the the trade-off is that you have to decrease price to do that.
0: And obviously that's been something that's covered extensively in the media, is that Saudi Arabia has enough oil reserves in order to play that game. But who do you think is most likely to blink first, so to speak?
1: All nations involved have substantial reserves to weather, weather a fairly solid fight, um, but as as to who is going to buckle first, I'm going to defer that uh, that question to others.
2: Um, perhaps if I can actually come in there, because I think the issue here is about 15 years ago, the turn of the century, we were actually talking about the fact that we were hitting peak supply and we were actually going to run out of oil. Um, what's actually happened in a very short space of time as we've seen the improving fuel efficiency of motor vehicles right around the world, um, global fuel efficiency standards introduced by the major economies like North America, Europe and Asia. Um, we've actually moved from peak supply concerns to peak demand concerns. And so there is a suggestion that we're going to reach a point at which the demand will top out. And the existing reserves that we've got, we've seen the uh, predictions of how long those reserves are going to last continually be extended to the point now that we're looking at almost a 60 to 65-year horizon with what we currently have discovered and the demand that's been projected going forward. So coming back to the question you've actually asked, it really is a game of poker. It's a case of who is going to last the longest with a a commodity, effectively, that is going to decline in value over time. And so the question is, well, I've got this black stuff in the ground, it's worth something at the moment, but in the face of falling demand, it's going to be worth less and less in the future. So the question becomes, do I pull it out of the ground and make hay while the sun shines, even at a lower price, or do I get to a point of saying, no, I'm just going to leave it in the ground because the costs aren't worth me pulling it out of the ground?
0: And you're implying that oil is becoming less and less a black gold, so to speak.
2: I think it's still, I mean, if I talk about it, it's probably been a, a, a black platinum. It's The shine's coming off a little bit to it now being a, a precious commodity rather than a, a rare commodity. But I think the issue really boils down to how fast we're likely to see... Um, the demand for oil come off as we start to see replacement with other sources of energy, both in the transport and the non-transport market. And that's really the challenge.
0: So how dependent upon global crude oil prices is the price of petrol in Australia? Because obviously the media have, have created this this image that the minute crude oil prices drop, there's going to be a drop in prices at, at your local petrol station, or that's at least the narrative that's being formed. But how realistic is that? And also, what are the checks and balances in place to keep a reasonable level of domestic fuel prices?
2: There's two elements to the answer to that question. The first is the time it takes from the point at which we see a drop or change in the price of oil and what the quantum of impact is on the petrol price. So let's deal with the first one first. What we generally talk about when we talk about a change in oil prices is a change at the trading desk. So that's the raw material, the change in the price of the raw material. I then have to take that raw material, refine it to produce petroleum, ship it to an international market, store it at a port, truck it to a service station and retail it. And typically there's a one to two week lag depending upon the rate of turnover. So a high service station might be getting uh, demand replenished in the morning and the afternoon with a tanker unloading. A low volume service station or an average one might be one to two days and a rural one it might actually be up to three days. So we do see a lag between the point at which the crude oil price changes and what we actually see at the pump. In terms of the impact on the petrol price, crude oil, and I think we always forget this, we don't put oil in our cars. We put finished product in our cars. So there's a cost to manufacture it, transport it. There's taxes that sit over the top of it. So typically of the retail price we pay at the pump at the average petrol price, and there's always some consternation about what we mean by average, but at the average petrol price, the crude oil accounts for about 35%. Of the price we pay at the pump. So even if I went to a point of I'm going to see a 50% drop, at that level it's going to equate to about a 15%, that is half of the 35% or 17% drop in the price we pay at the pump. Uh, There are other costs that don't change according to the crude oil price. So the cost of shipping it, the cost of transporting it, storing it, we pay 57 cents a litre tax, both excise at 43 cents and about um, 14 cents in terms of excise. Those costs remain fixed no matter what the crude oil price actually does, which means here in this country, um, if you work on the basis that a lot of our product is actually now manufactured outside of the country, Between 82 and 85% of the price we pay at the pump, we have no control over.
0: Not to sort of summon a familiar ghost, but COVID-19 has had an enormous effect on global supply chains. How much of an effect has this sort of restriction on global supply chains had upon the fuel industry, if at all? Or is this just an entirely different kettle of fish?
2: I think the issue here is that the estimates we're hearing from the market at the moment is that COVID-19 may result in a 1.5 million barrel a day reduction in demand. So when we hit the peak of disruption, which is where we start to shut down cities, we're going to see less travel, less movement of freight. And so the estimates are on the demand side that we'll actually see a drop of 1.5 million barrels a day. When you couple that with a war that's going on on the supply side in terms of the OPEC bloc and Russia about how far do they go in a bidding war, you've actually got two factors that are potentially going to drive price down. The key challenge for us as an economy is we're a commodity economy, so it's not just the oil price. Because the oil price is in US dollars, we also have to watch the movement in exchange rates. So while recently we saw a 25% reduction in the price of oil, we also saw a 5% devaluation the price of the dollar. So the net benefit for us was about 20%. Interestingly, 24 hours later, the oil price went up by 7%. So, you know, it's, there's a whole range of factors that play on the crude price, the net crude price is a proportion of the fuel price in Australia.
0: Now, Michael, uh, the Australian Electric Vehicle Association was founded in 1973 off the back of the Arab. Oil crisis, So it must feel almost like familiar territory in a way. That was a giant supply shock that rippled throughout the global market. Crude oil has once again become somewhat of a political bargaining chip, with obvious consideration to the environmental costs. Uh, what are some of the other reasons why Australia should potentially move away from importing fossil fuels for transport?
3: Key reasons why we're advocating the move to electric transport is to minimise the the uh, environmental impacts. But there's also things like Mark mentioned in uh, would be say energy sovereignty, where we have to import fuel, transport fuel, uh, whereas we can produce our own electricity here, and we could um, we can and do have mechanisms to run our cars, run our transport on. Uh, a product that we produce locally, uh, that we collect locally. So our energy sovereignty is a, is a significant reason to go down that path.
0: Comsec's chief economist, Craig James, started this entire conversation. Now, he said that for every US dollar fall in oil price, there's a 1% fall at the petrol bowser. How realistic is that estimation? And what are some of the other key costs and variables that go into petrol pricing?
2: Well, I might come in on that one. I think he actually talked about a $1 drop in the US, one every one US dollar drop in the cost of crude oil per barrel equates to a one cent drop in the cost of petrol. Um, now, that's premised though on the fact that you're looking at the long term exchange rate for the Australian dollar, which is about 72, 74 cents long term. Uh, we're actually below that at the moment, we're at 62. So there is a question about the fact it's probably 1.2, 1.1 cents in terms of the cost um, that's actually recouped. But the real issue here is, um, from that perspective, you're really looking, if we were to just take it at where the tapas is at the moment, which is about $42 a barrel, average retail price at the moment is 44. So for what you can see there is that if you for each dollar drop, you're going to get a cent discount up to a maximum of 42 cents a liter off a dollar 44 mm. which means that for it to reach a dollar a barrel the price of oil would have to be zero and so I suppose from that perspective that's I think it's important there that we talk about average price so in Sydney and Melbourne and Brisbane we actually see the impact of what's called a discount cycle where I will not necessarily be selling at every every day, at an optimal level, I go through a sale, so I'll actually keep discounting so I'm getting more volume than my competitors. And you tend to see a swing in the fuel price from the top of the cycle where it's most expensive. So in Sydney at the moment, it's about $1.80, down to the bottom of the cycle, where you see people who are discounting and selling below price to actually keep the volume up and going through their forecourt, because in our industry, fuel retailer, it's a it's a volume game. Um, So if you actually apply the figures that Craig James is talking about at the bottom of the cycle, sure, you'll get below that level with a 50% drop in oil price. But the reality here is you've got to use the average price, which is the middle value inside the cycle.
0: Dr. DeRue, there's been no formal promises that these reductions in crude oil prices are going to be passed on to the Australian consumer at the pump. Josh Frydenberg, federal treasurer has made assurances that we will benefit from these price drops. That's really as much as he can do. How does the average petrol station pass on a reduction in the price of crude oil to the consumer when they fill up their car?
1: So the, the primary cost consideration for a, a retailer is going to be a, a wholesale price, a terminal gate price, which is going to be determined by the, the factors that Mark has talked about. So the price of crude oil, taxes the uh, exchange rate so those things are going to feed together to determine a, a wholesale price which we call a terminal gate price and over and above that the retailers will will charge a margin which in through the discount cycle has uh, varied quite a lot if you if you look at the moment at um, a terminal gate price in Sydney it's sitting at around about a dollar ten or a little bit lower per liter uh, and retail price I think this morning on my way to work I saw about a dollar sixty so something like that so at the moment the retail margins are very high. Uh, we'd expect those to come down through the discount cycle, but perhaps the discount cycle is based on a higher wholesale price at the moment. So I'd think the regular discount cycle will continue, but perhaps we'll accelerate a little bit in, through this cycle. And at the bottom of the cycle, perhaps we get towards the wholesale price. So we might come down to, if the wholesale price is, is fixed, around about ten or something like that at the bottom of a cycle.
0: Okay, so the estimates of a dollar a litre aren't... Entirely off in
2: that case. In relation to people predicting the impacts on petrol prices, there is so much at play that, you know, being, uh, I suppose, uh, immersed in this industry, you never say anything's not possible. But to suggest it's probable, as was actually done last week, is potentially a little misleading. We're at a point here at the moment that to be able to get that, I've actually got to get a lower. Oil price, and from where it current, currently sits, you've got to get two more drops of 30% in the global oil price before you're going to see a sustained um, terminal gate price at the sort of level that would actually warrant a $1 a litre petrol price. And it's actually interesting, as has been talked about before. I mean, for us, it's a it's a really interesting dilemma in terms of helping people understand the petrol price cycle, because at the moment there's a 50 cent a litre gap, as we just talked about last week it was actually a gap of minus three cents a litre. So these swing so wildly that effectively what you've got here is a competition dynamic where I take my price up and then everyone around me starts discounting. And we play this game of discount leapfrog till we get to the bottom of the cycle where there's too much pain. One of the players decides to go up, and it's usually the high volume player because they're selling too much at a loss, and then everyone follows them up. And so you get effectively these peaks and a bit like a sine wave that goes up and down At the moment, it's got quite dramatic in terms of the variance between the top and the bottom of the cycle.
0: Michael, the issue of electric cars proved quite controversial in the lead-up to last year's election. Coalition claimed that Labor's policy to target 50% of new car sales to be electric by 2030 would effectively kill off the tradies' ute. Is the Australian government, for lack of a better expression, asleep at the wheel regarding the electric car?
3: I think that's so that's almost true, They're leave at the wheel. At least they're not providing uh, any direction. Uh, at the moment, there's a bit of a vacuum in uh, direction in and around well, I think um, energy production in general, but also electric cars specifically. So they're not providing the the market uh, and the vendors any kind of guarantees on what the market should and could do.
0: Many people have said that electric cars would put an undue strain on our electrical grids there have been other reports that have suggested that cars would be able to essentially uh, put electricity back into our grid if they were to charge at charging stations. Is the perception of the electric car changing, um, maybe not necessarily in government, but in terms of the general Australian public?
3: I think that's true. Um, and it's a, you're right, it's a really solid push from some of the vendors, particularly the, the likes of Nissan, who are really, really interested in, in vehicle to grid. But also... The grid providers as well—they're seeing this as an opportunity. Um, if, if you look at what's happening now with solar, there's been a fairly slow, steady, probably not slow and steady nowadays. There's a, a real uptick in the uptake of of solar. We're starting to see batteries come into into play to help uh, push the the peak or you know, the usage of solar into later into the evenings. Well, if you throw a, an electric vehicle into the mix, not only are you able to use it to drive, use it to move around, but it's probably about three or four times the average size of a house battery, meaning that you've got extra capacity there that you can use yourself, uh, you could sell back into the market, uh, you could use to drive. So it, it does create an, a really interesting and new way of looking at the usage, the the uh, capabilities of electric vehicles.
0: We've been discussing this over the course of the conversation, but do the potential costs of restructuring a transport grid outweigh the potential benefits?
3: Uh, I, I don't completely agree. i, I I think you're right, and we're talking about different stages and phases phases of the market. If you're looking at uh, consumer cars, residential cars, I mean, uh, most uh, transport needs right now could be uh, serviced by an electric vehicle, 99% of mine, uh, as an example, so in in a metro area. When you start to look at uh, uh, long transport routes, if you're looking at heavy trucking, well, that's probably not going to be something that uh, electrification can um, answer right now. So it's going to take uh, time for those different markets to be able to move over to electric transport. Uh, It's going to take time for us to replace the entire fleet of vehicles in Australia, if if ever, with electric. And, you know, of course, that's our hope in Aiva. It's going to take time for that to roll out. It's also going to take time for us to to, uh, upgrade the grid to support uh, things like vehicle to grid just at, at uh, uh, technologies. So, uh, are we going to uh, completely destroy the grid uh, with EVs? No, that's not the case. Are we able going going to be able to build a, a better grid uh, using electric vehicles? Almost definitely. Um, uh, will there be benefits when we go down that path? Absolutely. Uh, just in terms of of the the carbon that we burn and the um, the damage that we do to uh, our um, environment? Definitely. Um, is it something that we have to do? Uh, almost, uh, definitely. We have to look at uh, ways to, to move to electric transport. It's just a way more efficient way of using our energy however we generate it, whether it's from digging it out of the ground or whether it's from picking it out of the sky.
0: Now, Mark, you've made it clear that this entire sort of media frenzy uh, that has sparked this conversation itself um, is just another attack upon the industry uh, for continuing to charge a national average fuel price. Um, it may sound slightly ironic, but does the media slightly obscure the realities of the downstream petroleum industry?
2: Um, yes, but I think it's it's not a deliberate intent. Um, the pricing, as we've actually talked about, is incredibly complex. And as we've already talked about, what we do as an industry is we provide tools on apps like Informed Sources and Petrol Spy and Fuel Watch. We've got compulsory government programs requiring real-time reporting. Um, but all you're able to really look at is the end point, not the component build up. So the impact that the crude oil price movement has had for cents in every litre, irrespective of what the price of fuel is. Um, so to that end, I think we tend to just focus on the end point. Um, the sort of conversation we're having here now, you can't have in a 20 second grab on the news. And so there is a sense here that we've learnt as a community to really rattle on about petrol prices. Um, there's, a que- there's a problem here, though, that... In a lot of ways, our industry has not done a good job of actually breaking down the component costs and talking about what that means. And we haven't spent the time trying to work out, well, how do we actually communicate that in a better way? It's been something we've been trying to address for some time, but you've got so many years of this game of football and you know the industry's a fair whipping post, so give it a go because it won't actually hurt and no one will argue with you. I I, I once had, when I first came in, I went to a uh, federal politician, I won't mention their name, but they basically said to me, we never won any votes by supporting your industry. We win more votes by kicking it. And that's probably the nature of the real politic. So we're not overly sensitive to that. I think the issue here is... We go about our business, our net margins are half the all industry average. So the all industry average at five point five percent gross margin over what I earn. In the fuel industry, it's closer to three. So at that level, you know, we've got a fierce competition dynamic. But as we have, as we've already talked about, some incredible volatility in a number of our markets, that people just don't understand. And when I actually say to people, look, here's the wholesale price at a dollar thirty five and they're selling at a dollar sixteen, they don't understand why we'd even do that. Hmm. But the reality is, as the cycle recovers, they'll recover that in the next cycle. And it all balances out over time.
0: Picking up on this conversation, how much of an effect does the media have on the dynamics of the retail petrol industry?
1: Prices are very transparent, if you're paying attention. Most people are not. Um, and I think part of, one of the impacts of the volatility is it's harder to pay attention in the retail petrol market. It's harder to know when I pass a BP station selling at $1.50, is this a good price? Is it the case that Woolworths is selling at $1.50 as well, or 7-Eleven? Or is it the case they're selling at $1.40 or $1.60? Now, one of the reasons I don't know that is because of the volatility. So if you think of an alternative world in which there wasn't such volatility, I think consumers would be much better informed and that might create more competitive conditions for firms to be more aggressive. So one of the outcomes of the volatility is that it's harder for consumers to actually go out there and compare prices, and I think that makes it easier for firms to be able to sustain higher margins. And that's one thing that we have seen in looking at uh, the retail petrol market in the last decade or so, that margins have increased um, on average, So, so kind of averaging over the cycle, and plausibly, that's related to the uh, excessive volatility that we have in, in, the, in the retail market. And that's, that's not due to volatility in uh, any of those driving factors that we talked about earlier. In the, in the, in the crude oil market, taxes are fixed um, and exchange rate varies quite a bit, but not nearly as much as the, as the retail prices. So that's volatility in the retail margin.
0: Michael, obviously, as we've been talking over the last 15 minutes or so, one thing that keeps consistently popping up is the volatility of fuel prices. It would seem that that would be a perfect advertisement for going electric. Would you agree with that?
3: To a certain degree, yes, that's true. Um, I mean, the volatility of uh, electric prices, just looking at the what we buy now, is much more stable and, and reasonably highly regulated. Uh, but there are a lot, uh, a lot of other consumers in that market, everyone from households to to big industries. So it, it is a very different market than the, the um, fuel market in general.
0: The ACCC uh, are obviously Australia's consumer watchdog. Now, what are some of the methods and strategies that they use to ensure that Australian consumers get a fair price at the
2: pump? Okay, so from a fuel retail industry perspective, we're one of only two industries in the country, the other one being Stevedoring, that are actually required to provide the ACCC with a full summary of daily costs, margins and input prices, retail prices. So effectively what they do, and they've been doing now for about 16 years, is they have statutory laws that allow them to compel the bigger retailers to disclose all that information. What they then do is use that information to actually have a look at whether the market is behaving the way it actually should. And they'll make um, statements about what the margins uh, are trending like over time and whether that margin is moving above a historical average. And that's effectively what they do. I think the most important thing that I always say in defence of the industry is they've been doing that for 16 years. We haven't had any material breach. And part of the suggestion I often hear is, well, we've got this volatility, there must be something in that, so let's control that volatility. But how do you do that and comply with competition law? Because what I'd have to do is get all the retailers in the room and say, okay, we want you to all charge this price. That's actually cartel conduct, and effectively it's illegal under federal competition law. I always point people to the fact that when you look at The information is produced by the office of the federal chief economist you'll actually see that they rank australia petrol prices relative to world prices we're the fourth lowest on petrol and the sixth lowest on diesel of all 42 oecd economies and that's largely we we deal with the volatility as a cost of that but it's the competitive tension i'll always argue that is actually driving that price if i compare to other markets where i regulate they tend to be in the top quartile of that list where the government actually introduces a a market cap and a market floor or they regulate a price. They're always higher. And so I suppose coming from the business area, I'm always going to talk about the free market dynamic is going to be better than a regulatory system. The reality here is we operate in a co-regulated market where a significant component of our price is controlled by tax.
0: Why does the petrol industry find itself on the back foot so often with consumers? The ACCC have such a Airtight system to ensure that there aren't uh,
1: breaches of competition laws. Then why does why does it consistently get in trouble? I think the volatility is a large part of that. So uh, the fact that retail prices and margins jump around uh, so substantially for reasons that are unrelated to to costs. Mm-hmm. This is something that's naturally suspicious uh, for consumers. Like the the first intuition is probably that. Firms are coordinating with each other. Um, And in addition to that, there are historical examples where uh, likely they have. Um, So there are cases that have been prosecuted unsuccessfully, um, where there's substantial evidence of coordination in terms of the timing of communication between the firms that's matched cyclical prices. Um, So that's suggestive evidence that there are attempts to coordinate. And some of my research uh, with Dave Byrne from Melbourne uh, suggests that the firms actually have tried to coordinate through means that are not really um, discoverable by the law. So through actually communicating by signalling through their pricing mechanisms what kind of prices to set for their competitors. Um, so these don't fall out of competition laws which essentially outlaw direct communication between the players, but market signalling is a, is a weak link in competition law. So and it's a sort of sign language almost. It's an increasingly sophisticated sign language.
2: I'll have to take issue with that, obviously, as the industry. Um, what, what we're talking about here is the asymmetry of information. So there was a very significant case that the ACCC mounted where information was being shared about market prices and a summary provided. Actually, the ACCC was using that information, which is really important to note. Um, But it was actually being shared by a number of the bigger retailers and not being shared with consumers and the broader market. And so the ACCC took issue with that in that there wasn't a symmetry of information. That is, one part of the market was seeing it and the other wasn't. As a result, there was a suggestion of a market advantage. But it's really important to note, and this is why I'll always be really really robust on this is that case was dropped by the ACCC, Now there was significant money that was actually spent in going through that process, but that case was actually dropped. Coming back to your question though in terms of why we're always on the back foot, I think it is the volatility, and in fact it, it would be great for us, there's 2,580 businesses that participate in this market, not 6, and it's a really important thing that most people don't understand. A lot of independent dealers that run with the brand, that's their only agreement. Um, franchisees that operate in that space. So to actually have everybody working in concert, I'd have to find a room big enough for 2,580 people, a smoke-filled dark room away from the ACCC eyes and somehow get together with a cartel action. The, the, the proposition is preposterous, if I can actually use a, a manifest alliteration of P's. But within that context, um, one of our biggest challenges at the moment is really on the premise that... Um, There is a real difference for our industry in that we're one of the few industries that highlight the price so you can see it from 200 metres away. There is nothing illegal in me actually looking at what my market competitor is doing and matching their price. So if they move, I'm going to match to do the same thing because I've got this price visibility that's actually out there. I've even got government apps and government laws like in New South Wales, Queensland, Northern Territory and being considered in South Australia where I'll actually collect that information for you in real time and give it to you in an app. So I don't have to drive around and match the price. I've actually got the government providing that information to me to be able to key when my competitor might be actually stealing a march on me because they've lowered their price. So within that context, we're an industry that has a high degree of visibility, as we've talked about already, and it would be a mug who would not adapt and match their competitors' intentions. And we actually see that in the retail industry, in the hardware industry, people go in, staff of individual businesses and go and check the prices of their competitors. This is no different. So what people see is a blocked movement in prices up and down. And so they conclude that that must be because somehow they're talking to each other. And I agree that we've created some mechanisms whereby government's almost been complicit in providing information that assists with that process. So to that end, I'll always argue that it's actually the transparency that operates in the market at the moment that facilitates it. If we were to get to a point that somehow you could smooth the volatility, we'd love it. Because if, if you think about it from a business perspective, I go from a rich feast at the top of the cycle where I'm getting lots of margin, down to the bottom of the cycle where I'm losing money, place havoc with cash flow. It's not in the interest of retail businesses to have that volatility in cash flow.
0: Michael, I'll just ask you one last question. Uh, Obviously, we've been talking at length about the relationship between the ACCC and the fuel industry. Um, What is the current relationship between the ACCC and the electric vehicle industry? And if electric vehicles become more popular, do you think that that relationship could start to change?
3: Uh, Probably will. um, But I would say, and this is from the Electric Vehicle Association, but, but don't single us out, Um, that when you look at the way that uh, the rollout uh, and the popularity of things like hybrid vehicles or more fuel-efficient vehicles in general, then we're all relatively paying less for our infrastructure because of the taxes that the the government are getting through, fuel excises and the like. It's reducing um, on a per-vehicle basis. So that's going to increase. Uh, So from our perspective, we're saying... um, As an electric vehicle owner, yes, we understand that we've got to pay for our part of the infrastructure, but um, don't necessarily single us out because we're part of a larger market.
0: That's about it for today's program. Thank you to our guests, Dr. Nicholas Deruz, Mark McKenzie and Michael Day. Think Business Futures is recorded at the studios of 2SER Sydney and produced with the assistance of the UTS Business School. Make sure to catch the full show on your favourite podcast app and don't forget to spread the good word of the show with your friends. I've been your host, Max Tillman. See you again next week.